This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Well, we survived another week. We're still on the air, and that's uh, the name of the game after all. You have to live to fight another day. And uh, we will not go gently into that good night, my friends. Uh, This show exists in part to shine a light backstage in the global theater. And tonight we're going to attempt to shine a light uh, and expose the shadowy figures behind the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, June 6th marked the 47th anniversary of his murder inside the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And the supposed gunman, Sirhan Sirhan, still languishes in prison and maintains his innocence. Uh, Historian and author John Kerner is standing by to discuss in mere moments. First, let me remind you to get on up to the uh, website richardserrett.com where Albert Vinzel and I have posted a collection of stories in the slide carousel. If you're following reports about a possible ISIS cell located in Mexico and just across the border with the United States, you'll likely be alarmed and perhaps dismayed by this story. Judicial Watch is reporting that rather than working to protect Americans, the FBI's reaction to a report of an ISIS cell in Mexico, eight miles outside of the United States, was to hold a spin meeting with the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez uh, without the Department of Homeland Security. They're reportedly trying to figure out how to create a successful press strategy to deny the report about the cell and to identify who is leaking the information. Uh, And if you thought all talk uh, from a few years ago about a catastrophic bird flu pandemic killing millions had just sort of gone away and was uh, a false alarm, think again. You may want to check out this story where Bill Gates, the founder and kajillionaire of Microsoft, uh, fears global pandemic. And if you thought all talk from a few years ago about a catastrophic bird flu pandemic which could kill millions, has just sort of gone away and perhaps was a false alarm. Think again. Uh, You may want to check out this story. Uh, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft and, of course, uh, one of the world's richest men, fears a global pandemic could wipe out 33 million people. Those are just two of the stories you'll find in the slide carousel atop of richardserrett.com. So, uh... My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you very much. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. With Senator Kennedy, at the time of his death, were his wife, Ethel, 
your sisters, Mrs. Stephen Smith, Mrs. Patricia Lawford, brother-in-law, Mr. Stephen Smith, and sister-in-law, Mrs. John F. Kennedy. He was uh, 42 years old. Shortly after midnight, June 5th, 1968, Los Angeles, California, during the campaign season for the United States presidential election uh, in 1968, after winning the California and South Dakota Shortly after midnight, June 5th, 1968, in Los Angeles, uh, during the campaign season for the U.S. presidential election, Robert F. Kennedy was slain uh, just after winning the California and South Dakota primary elections for the Democratic nomination. He was uh, shot as he walked through the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel and died in the Good Samaritan Hospital 26 hours later. John Kerner is a professor of American history at Erie Community College in Williamsville, New York. He's the author of several books, uh, including Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Hey, John, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you doing tonight? Terrific. Thank you. Uh, well, hard to believe. Uh, let's see, 1968, we're talking 47 years ago, nearly half a century, and uh, the last... Words uttered by uh, Senator Kennedy, uh, you know, um, now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Uh, he's, of course, escorted into the, uh, into the, uh, the pantry at uh, the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, and uh, that was all she wrote. Um, when you look back on the, uh, the events of that assassination, um, and specifically what transpired in the pantry, the kitchen, what jumps out at you immediately as sort of a red flag, something that just doesn't add up? Well, the official version of events is that there was only one gunman, but with just a little bit of logic and evidence, we can easily disprove that. Sirhan Sirhan never got close enough for a uh, point-blank shot in the back of the head, and RFK's autopsy had that easily revealed that he got shot in the back of his skull, point blank against the skull. There were powder burns behind his ear, were there not? Absolutely, and on his coat, too, yeah. Easily proven that he was being shot close up, close range for the kill shot. And the hotel maitre d', uh, Carl Euchre, he made it very clear to investigators that he was pulling the senator by the wrist through the hotel kitchen pantry to get him to a press conference which was outside of the kitchen pantry where reporters were gathered to wait for the senator. So he was dragging RFK through by the wrist. So he was right next to RFK as the shots were being fired. And Helltel Maitre D, Carl Euchre, said that the assassin never got that close to him, perhaps within three or four feet, maybe even longer than that. But no way could he got that close for that kind of a kill shot. And who was, was it Rosie Greer that pinned Sirhan to the steam table? Uh, who was on the Kennedy uh, security detail? I thought it was Rosie Greer, but I may be wrong about that. Right, Rosie Greer was there. We can also point out Nina Rhodes Hughes, too. Nina Rhodes Hughes was a campaign worker for RFK, and she was in the room, too, next to the senator. And she said that she saw another man shooting at RFK that was not Sirhan Sirhan. And she came forward with this information in April of 2012, and she said that this other gunman was the one who shot Kennedy in the back of the head, not Sirhan, who delivered the kill shot. 
Now, the, um, the weapon in question, the, the weapon that Sirhan was in fact firing, I mean, it wasn't his, it wasn't his hand, there's no question about that. That was a twenty two caliber Ivor Johnson. Mm-hmm. It was a cadet revolver. Right. But it, that's an interesting weapon because it's not like a six-shooter. Is it a five or a seven or something? Eight shots. Eight yeah. shots. Right. That's interesting. But, and he emptied the chamber, right? Mm-hmm. But, but how many shots, I mean, how many bullets were accounted for? Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get thirteen out of eight. It doesn't add up. <laughs> Yeah, so you can point to that. You can point to the fact there's the headshot, and you can point to the, the testimony from Nina Rhodes Hughes, and you just can add these things up, and there's just no way that it was the way the official version has us believe. And and um, what about the ballistics? Uh, the um, the the shot that wounded um, Bobby's aide. Uh, in fact, that's that's all Kennedy was concerned about. He's lying on the floor, right. mortally wounded, and the first thing out of his mouth is, you know, how is and and uh, uh, his his aide that was injured, um, uh, whose name escapes me uh, right at the moment. But uh, what do the ballistically do the do the bullets match a twenty two caliber Ivor Woods Johnson? No, not all of them don't. It's clear from the FBI's analysis and from the LAPD that there was at least one more gun that was being shot that night. And again, if you look at Nina Rhodes Hughes, who says that she hears 13 shots, and she counted them in her head, she said she recognized the rhythm in their head. There had to have been another gunman there. And even Sirhan himself has admitted, this was back in February of 2011, that he was brainwashed by the agency to kill Robert Kennedy. So he's alive today, he's still in California jail. And he came forward just a few years ago and came out with that information that he was brainwashed with the MK Ultra program. Right. I, I've um, I've met uh, Sir Han's lawyer, um, um, William Francis Pepper, Pepper yeah. and uh, in New York, and we talked at length in a hotel room about uh, about uh, Sir Han, his client, and and he uh, also uh, believes fervently that that he was mind controlled. And um, which brings us to the um, the infamous lady in the polka dot dress, uh, and um, uh, Sirhan talks about meeting this woman. And the other thing that he mem- remembers is it's, it's quite sketchy, mm-hmm. uh, but he remembers this giant urn of coffee. He wanted coffee. Walk us through um, Sirhan's um, what happened to Sirhan leading up to. Uh, the actual uh, assassination and the shooting. What, when he was in the hotel? Yeah, a lot of this stuff is very controversial because the LAPD, when they arrested him, they tried to get things out of him, information from him. He, they thought that he was acting like a, like a robot or, or some kind of trained assassin. He, he couldn't say what his name was. He looked like he was hypnotized. He was having some drinks that night with this polka dot dress girl. And his behavior was completely bizarre. And you look at his entries in his journal. He was writing things like, RFK must die. It seemed like he'd been going through things like uh, sensory deprivation control, torture techniques, the things that would be used to make this man act the way he was acting that night. And the police, they picked up on this right away. And and when he was being interrogated and when they arrested him that night, his behavior was completely bizarre, like a a trained assassin would behave. Was he also not seen on a um, uh, taking target practice at some point before uh, the assassination? Right. Yeah, it it seems like, just like with, um, (laughs) led to the JFK assassination, there was a... 
uh, Lee Harvey Oswald lookalike that was taking target practice on the guy next to him. So they want to make sure that the patsy gets lined up before the shooting takes place in really both situations. And uh, he assumed kind of a um, – um, did he not assume kind of a, a combat stance when he, was start, when he began firing the pistol in the, in the pantry? Right. And, I mean, the kitchen pantry itself, it just a chaotic scene. It's just packed with people. And, and, and like you said, with RFK, he immediately recognizes the fact that his friends are there, his campaign workers are there, and they're being targeted too. So you have the scene itself, is, it just lends itself to the truth being kind of uh, smoothed over because there's so much chaos going on that you can kind of cover up what really happened with all the chaotic activity in the kitchen pantry. Was, um, what was... Uh, Sirhan Sirhan's opinion of the Kennedys. He was a, a Palestinian, um, and ostensibly, you know, the um, the motive was given that that uh, you know he didn't like the Kennedys' position on on Israel vis a vis Palestine or the Palestinian situation. But but that doesn't necessarily square with his 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 um, his opinions about the Kennedys before the assassination, does it? I mean, he wasn't he wasn't vocally. Uh, opposed to the Kennedys prior to the assassination, was he? He wasn't out protesting, distributing no. flyers like Oswald? No. No, in fact, uh, an interview I, I watched with him is he bizarrely says that he wanted RFK to win the presidency. So uh, none of it really adds up. And we just bring in another guy into this equation, a guy named David Morales, who was also most likely there in the kitchen pantry. He probably was the other gunman. There was a guy named uh, Shane O'Sullivan from the BBC, a very good reporter that worked for Newsnight. And back in 2006, he did an investigation trying to figure out who else was in that kitchen pantry that night and in the Ambassador Hotel ballroom. And he found out through his research that three agents from the, from the CIA were in the ballroom that night, one of whom was uh, David Morales, and Morales was one of these members of the Phoenix program in Vietnam and in Laos that were you know, running drugs from Southeast Asia to the United States. And he most likely was one of these other men who was involved with, with the assassination, David Morales. All right, we will get into that uh, in, a, in a few moments. We're coming up on a break here. John Kerner is uh, with us, and he is the author of Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. We are commemorating the 47th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, and uh, perhaps we could add Bobby Kennedy to that list uh, and tie that into the secret drug trade in Laos. We'll find out when my interview with John Kerner continues right after this, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We are back with John Kerner. The book is Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, of course, uh, was uh, no friend of J. Edgar Hoover and vice versa. <laughs> they, there was no question they, uh, the, you know, the animosity there was palpable. Um, how much uh, did, did Hoover uh, know and have to do with this assassination, do you think? Well, I think he at least knew about it and was monitoring it. He was deeply involved in monitoring the Malcolm X assassination and also, I think, the RFK assassination as well. 
I think he plays more of, of an oversight role. He knows what's going on and is not going to stop any of this stuff. But I, I personally think most of the blame really lies in the feet of the agency. That's where most of the motive comes from and where the shooters, I think, really are, by the, the assassin's own admission, really are, are coming from. And Morales himself is mentioning this report that Shane O'Sullivan did on Newsnight. The report included a quote from Morales, and he says, I was in Dallas when we got that son of a bitch, and I was in Los Angeles when we got that little bastard. So Morales himself, just arrogant, just ruthless assassin involved with the, the RFK assassination. Uh, I, we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, the drug trade in uh, Southeast Asia and how that may tie in, but how much of it, uh, if it was the agency again involved in Bobby Kennedy's assassination, I had to do with the possibility that once elected president, he would uh, revisit the Warren report and the uh, and the assassination of his brother. That's a huge part of it. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing about this is that uh, the, the the very day that JFK is assassinated, Bobby Kennedy goes to Director uh, McCone and he tells him basically, that I, "I know you, you did this, and so we're going to find out how." He accuses him of of figuring out, you know, of planning the assassination. So RFK spends the next several years doing his own research. And he talks to men like uh, Penn Jones Jr. and Walter Sheridan, two men had, that had been doing some their own research on JFK's assassination. He visited uh, Mexico City, where Oswald had visited. And he, he figures out that it, at some point, he believes that at some point the agency planned and executed his brother's assassination. So if he became president, like you were saying, he was going to reopen the investigation and, and prove who did this. Now, the, uh, the LAPD, uh, one thing that's interesting, because this was in, in 1968, uh, this was actually the, investigated by the LAPD. I mean, back then, that's the way it, it went. Now, if this happened today, of course, the feds would have been involved from the get-go. But let's talk a little bit about the LAPD investigation. And um, there was a chief of de de detectives, uh, Robert Houghton, and uh, he asked the, uh, the chief of homicide, Detective Hugh Brown, to take charge of the investigation. And uh, I think it was codenamed Special Unit Senator or something like that. Right. Um, and he actually... Houghton, that is, was sort of thinking along those same lines, that, that there may have been a link between Bobby Kennedy's death and those of JFK and Martin Luther King. What happened to that investigation? I mean, that was pretty, that's pretty, um, um, how should I say, uh, I don't know, unexpected to think that, that a, a, an LAPD uh, chief of detectives would sort of, would think that you know, he, he he might be accused of being conspiratorial today if you were to think that. Yeah, you would think so, right? Unfortunately, um, a lot of the investigators like him that were in the LAPD and had wanted to do the right thing and look into this, they found out that a lot of the evidence, um, the testimony that, that Sirhan gave on custody, had been destroyed, and they couldn't get at a lot of the information they wanted to find because it just didn't exist. It was shredded or. or are locked up in, in for national security purposes, and they couldn't get at what they wanted to find. So that was, there was just a huge roadblock to trying to figure out the truth. Did any of the, um, the LAPD uh, speak later, whether it was Houghton or uh, Hugh Brown, who was the uh, chief of homicide, did they 
ever speak out publicly about uh, obstacles to the investigation being thrown up by the CIA? The only incident that I know where we got closer to the truth is the information that came out with with Carl Eucher, uh, Hotel Maitre D. He's the one that was consistently telling the LAPD that Sirhan never got close enough to, to do the kill shot. And that information really comes directly from Los Angeles Police Department. So that's a key part that does come really from them. And I put that in the forensics part of the, of the investigation. That can get us closer to the truth. So that's one point that I can make with Carl Eucher and his testimony. He did tell them that pretty clearly, pretty early on, too, that he was right there and the kill shot could, could not have come from Sirhan. Um, what of this character, Thane Eugene Cesar, who um, was, um, I believe, uh, a security guard, but he also was, he, he, he had a weapon that night, did he not? Tell me about yes. Thane Eugene Cesar. Yeah, he's been the focus of a lot of attention in terms of he might have been the one who delivered the shot to Kennedy's uh, skull because he was pretty close to being in position to where that was. But other people that were in the room, like Nina Rhodes-Hughes, she has said that it was not him. It could, it, the description that she gives was, was someone else that fits more of a description of a man from the agency, dressed more, more like a man from the agency. So either him or say Morales or one of the other agents it's got to be someone because the position of Sirhan doesn't correspond to where he could have delivered the kill shot he's insisted though that it wasn't him that he had no motive to do it and he pulled his gun but never fired it and um, the all of the, gu- the, the bullets fired by uh, Sirhan's uh, 8 shot twenty two caliber Ivor uh, uh, Johnson Mm-hmm. Um, have, or Ivor Woods, rather. Um, have they all been accounted for? No, they haven't. And another thing to think about, too, is that when the LAPD goes in there and the FBI goes in there, they take a lot of photographs and they find uh, bullet holes in the kitchen pantry walls, and no one knows what happened to those bullets either. So a lot of the crime scene, in terms of where bullets went, what was taken out, is really unknown to this very day. We don't really know where it went. A lot of it was destroyed. The the destruction of evidence in a case like this, I mean, how does that happen? I mean, it had, it had to be deliberate. You would think so, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it seems like there might have been a, a recognition from the very beginning, maybe based on the assassin's behavior, that they did not want another Dallas. They didn't want another situation where there would be conspiracy theories and people would be questioning their, you know, their motives and, and, and leap to conclusions. So much easier than to go to a leap to a conspiracy than to just leap to the conclusion that just one person, nice, easy conclusion, and we just wrap things up with that. And a related point, too, I wanted to make, uh, you know, Sirhan, Sirhan goes on trial in 1969 and is given the death sentence. Fortunately, it got commuted and he was never executed. And we need to think about that if he was executed in 1969, the truth never comes out about this assassination. It takes years of hypnotherapy, psychiatric um, support through his psychologist, work with his, his lawyers, to finally, as I mentioned, in 2011, we get the truth coming out. So if he gets the death penalty 
1969, we never know the truth. So we need to wonder sometimes, why does the U.S. government always push the death penalty? You think about Timothy McVeigh, you think about the Boston Marathon bomber, both given the death penalty. And if they're in both cases killed, the truth can never, years later, come out. It's true. That, it, it, that is so often the case. And in these high-profile assassinations, uh, whether it's you know, John Lennon in 1980, Chapman, you know, mm-hmm. uh, can, uh, pleads guilty suddenly, uh, was ready to mount a, his lawyers were ready to mount a, a criminal insanity case. Then he does a complete turnabout. No trial, therefore. Uh, of course, with Oswald, the, um, he's uh, conveniently taken out by Jack Ruby. Right. Uh, and then with Sirhan Sirhan, or sorry, let's go back to MLK. Yeah. Uh, again, James Earl Ray, horrible lawyer, gets railroaded, is convinced uh, that he has to cop a plea because he's going to face the death penalty. So right. again, no trial. Uh, and then with Sirhan Sirhan, another guilty plea. You know, with the Boston Marathon bomber, too, there is so much interesting speculation about that being a black flag event that if this man is executed, uh, you know, this year or next, and we are not allowed to know what happened there, years later, we'll never know anything because he, he's silenced immediately. Same thing with Timothy McVeigh. And the, the feds always push this. They push to silence these people, and we, we never get to know the truth. And, and Sir Hans Hanna is a good, interesting case study because he was allowed to... To, to live here, so many years later, he comes out with the truth, and we know what happened then because of that. Uh, let's talk about his plea a little bit, because essentially he said, well, I, I guess I did it, because I don't, I don't have any recollection. If you say I did it, I guess I did it. What, I mean, talk to me about his legal team. That, they really dropped the ball. Yeah, they did. Uh, it's so many assassins, that's the case. Uh, Leon Shogosh, too, the assassin of President McKinley. His, his team also was just a complete joke. They just railroaded him, too. They almost are embarrassed to represent these men because they are, you know, enemy number one at that point in time. They've killed American heroes. So they, they are almost ashamed to do their job, so they don't do it. And it takes a man like William Pepper to have the courage to step forward and say, you know what, this is completely wrong. The man was railroaded by his, his lawyer team, and he deserves a fair shake and a fair trial. Why didn't they, and I, let's... Um assume that it was, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, it was the agency somehow involved. Why didn't they take Sirhan Sirhan out? Why has he been allowed to live and, and talk publicly? You know, it, that's an interesting question, too. I mean, I think the point of the death penalty would have served that. I think that was a way to get it done. But then, uh, I think it was, actually, Teddy Kennedy came forward and said that he wanted uh, to make sure that Sirhan lived. He courageously wrote a letter to the California uh, Department of Justice, and he said that this man does not deserve to be executed. We need to make sure there's no execution. And to his credit, I think he was part of the effort to keep the man alive, Senator Kennedy. Do you think that we'll ever see uh, another trial for Sirhan Sirhan? Well, William Pepper tried... And he, uh, he was denied that back in 2011. He felt that he, d- he deserved another trial based on the fact he wasn't culpable for the assassination. He could remember what happened. So he did try, but they, they were denied that back in 2011. I don't think we're ever going to have a chance to get another trial, no. Now, one thing we could see happen, this is possible. You might remember with uh, Dr. King's assassination, Prentice yes. Scott King, to her credit, got together with Dr. 
William Pepper actually was. Yes. They had a mock trial. A civil trial. With, yeah, right. with uh, you know James Earl Ray, and it didn't have any legal uh, bearing, but it did have real testimony with real witnesses that got some of the truth out. That's a possibility if there was the effort to do that. That would be a, a good way to go to have a mock trial. It's interesting that that uh, that was Pepper's other high-profile uh, client, and that was James Earl Ray. And uh, that civil trial in in Memphis, I believe it was in the late nineties, ninety nine, and uh, the uh, the plaintiffs, the Coretta Scott King and the King family, versus uh, I believe they mentioned uh, or they named a possible conspirator, Lloyd Jowers, and mm-hmm. other unnamed conspirators. And the uh, the jury returned within a couple of hours with a uh, a guilty verdict, and the King family was awarded. One dollar, which is all they asked for, but right. no media coverage of that trial whatsoever. I know it was just ridiculous, shameful, really. Yes, even even, uh, even just based on a sort of you know curiosity, you would think that there would have been some mainstream media coverage, but virtually nothing at all. Uh, we'll come back and uh, continue to discuss uh, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy as uh, we are on or near the the 47th anniversary of uh, his assassination. John Kerner, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We're back with John Kerner, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. Uh, we, we, we talked about uh, one of the possible motives that the agency wanted Bobby Kennedy dead, and that is uh, were he elected president, um, that, that he would have uh, reopened the JFK assassination uh, investigation. Uh, but there's another angle here, and, and this is really the subject of your, your book, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Let's explore that connection a little bit more. Why did, what, what did the, the drug trade uh, in Laos have to do with Bobby Kennedy? Well, at that point in time, the agency was making a, just a huge killing off the drug trade. They were making so much money off of it. They were basically using agents to spread drugs into the Southeast Asia and into the United States as well. And Devin Morales and Ted Shackley and a number of other men were on the ground running this operation, growing and selling drugs. And they, they also were selling a lot of the drugs to American GIs in Vietnam. Heroin was um, typically used by many GIs as a, as a stress relief for all the combat they, they had, the intense combat that they, they were kind of going through. So they were easy targets for um, buying heroin. And Bobby Kennedy was making it very clear that if he became president, all this was going to come to an end. Drug trade is going to stop. War in Vietnam is going to come to an end. And we mentioned before, too, that also one of his part of his agenda was to open up a new investigation to his post assassination. So he becomes a big threat because of that. And I think that's kind of where it ties in. Uh, e. Howard Hunt, we can mention him, too. E. Howard Hunt, you might know, on his deathbed, he confesses that he was involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. He tells this to his son, St. John. And he names a number of different men from the agency that were involved in JFK's assassination, one of whom was this guy, as I mentioned, David Morales. And Morales, as I mentioned before, is our connection between the drug trade, RFK, and JFK. He comes right from Hunt's testimony on his deathbed. Where is Morales today? Is he still alive? No, he died in the 70s, mysteriously. Um, <laughs> a lot of these uh, men die very strange deaths. Uh, he was about to be called before the House 
to me on assassinations to testify, but he died before he can he can get to the to do, get any testimony in there. There is documents sealed from the National Archives, about 61 or so, that relate to him that we're never going to see the light of day. But I think that's the key guy here we can keep focusing on. Uh, the um, the the effort to uh, to release a lot of the documents that pertain to JFK's assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination, uh, a lot of this, uh, the impetus for, for that, that bill that was passed to release these documents, I believe came in the... Uh, the wake of Oliver Stone's JFK movie. Um, what documents uh, came out of that a bill relating to Bobby's assassination that that uh, really you think were the most revelatory? Well, I think we should focus on more so the ones that haven't been released. I mean, we have just going back to you know what E. Howard Hunt had said. If you look at the ones, just from the, the the men he talked about, all the key players in the JFK assassination that he named, there are, just for example, there's 123 pages of files uh, for William K. Harvey, who Hunt says was the key man who organized the assassination. And I mentioned there's about 61 pages that relate to uh, Morales. There's 332 for Hunt. Uh, there were 606 for David Lee at David Atlee Phillips. So there's so much more that we can find out. These men that link to JFK's assassination and also RFK's assassination. We need to find these out, and the president should release them. What's to hide? And those those documents are sealed. They 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 cannot be. They will not be released. Well, there has been efforts to get them out of the National Archives, but. Back in 2013, um, the president released 1,100 pages of documents related to, to the assassination, but there are still about 175 batches that are still unreleased by the government, so we still have so much more to find out. I guess if you file an FOIA request, you know, what's to lose? If it gets released, it'll probably be redacted anyway. Well, have you given any thought to that, or have you already started that FOIA request? I think that should be the next step for me. I really should try to see what we can find out what's in these documents. And then at that point, what, what will be found out would be a nice good next step for, you know, maybe another book. Um, how easy or difficult would it be for you to, uh, to contact uh, or to speak with, uh, get, get an interview to, with Sirhan Sirhan? I would imagine it would be very difficult for me to get to any access to him. Would you, Doc- be, would you be able to go through uh, William Pepper? I would love to talk to him. That would be great. I mean, that w- I have so many questions for him. I mean, it would be it'd be a revealing interview. I'd like to talk to him about you know what happened that night, what he remembers. All right, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back, and maybe sure. we'll find out uh, what would your top three questions to Sirhan Sirhan be. John Kerner is with us, the author of Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. John Kerner is with us as we uh, commemorate the 47th anniversary of the assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy. Uh, before we get to back to Sirhan Sirhan, what kind of president do you think Kennedy would have made? I, I, I've argued with people that he may have even been better than Jack Kennedy. Oh, yeah, I think it's, it's so much so much hope died with him that night. If we can just say, for example, that Dr. King would have lived and RFK would have lived, 
Dr. King was going to start a poor people's campaign in 1968, and Robert Kennedy was focused on the working class, their needs, their hopes, their dreams. And he became president. I mean, think of the 1970s, 80s. Income inequality is such a big issue today. The rich own the top 1% of the wealth in the world, and that never happens if these two men are allowed to live. So he goes into the presidency in 69, the 70s begin with this hope and the dreams of the working class being achieved. And if he also gets to dismantle the, the agency, he would hold trials for treason, executions for treason. The truth comes out about the assassination of President Kennedy. There's just a whole new hope for the country. There's more respect for our nation as a nation of truth and honor, a nation that values its working class. So it so much dies with him that day. And, of course, the Vietnam, Vietnam War continues. More deaths from there, more drug addiction. All that stuff just continues. So it just, it's just such a bitter, this horrible day for the country when he's assassinated. Uh, do you think another concern was that um, had Bobby lived uh, and served perhaps two terms, all of a sudden that takes him up to 1976, and then waiting in the wings is Ted Kennedy. You could right. have had... A uh, uh, imagine if if John F. Kennedy had not been assassinated and had right. served two terms, and then Bobby's in line, and then Ted's in line. Talk about a political dynasty. Yeah, and I mean, all these men, their focus is on the working class, on the middle class, to 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 take care of their needs, their interests, their their ideas. Uh, they're men of vision and dreams, men of peace. And the whole orientation of our foreign policy is towards not war, but peace and equality and, and, and goodness. Is there a war on terrorism today against our country, the United States? Probably not. I mean, the, the things we challenge our country today with, with terrorism, militarization of our nation, inequality, these things all exist because those men were killed. And it, it just, the whole nation shifts on those days. All right, uh, back to Sirhan Sirhan, uh, languishing in prison still. And um, if you could have access to Sirhan Sirhan, uh, either directly or, let's say, through his attorney, William Francis Pepper, uh, what would your top three questions be? I think I would first ask him, like you were saying before, was he a JFK, I shouldn't say, sorry, RFK supporter? Did he like the Kennedys? Was he... Was he in favor of him being elected president? Because if you can establish that, then just have, there's no motive. And then if you go on from there, I want to know what he remembers from that night. What is he able to remember that he did that night? Because if he, he has a recollection of the evening, then we talk about you know responsibility for the assassination. And then third, I just want to know what, what he kind of feels about the future of his life, what he plans to do the rest of his life. He's got some years left. What, what does he have in mind for what he's going to do with the rest of his life? Well, they're going to be, sent, they're going to be spent behind bars. Uh, I mean, does he want to write a book? Does he want to write. have more, does he have more efforts for a new trial? Is there, is there more th- things he can tell us? Is that kind of uh, thing I want to get out of him, too. Yeah, uh, how uh, an individual like that is able to keep... Uh, to keep it together, yeah. Uh, to me, is remarkable. Uh, you know, no hope for release, really. I don't believe, uh, and yet uh, he just he keeps going, and and seems to be, you know, uh, fairly positive in his outlook in life. He seems to be a halfway decent kind of a guy. I mean, he seems like a, a well-adjusted human being. Uh, he doesn't seem like he's you know evil or or vindictive or ruthless. He seems like a really halfway. Uh, decent, sane, intelligent kind of a person. 
Indeed, indeed. What are let's go back to some of the records uh, that have not been released that have been sealed regarding the um, uh, assassination of Bobby Kennedy, uh, and, and you mentioned some of the revelations of um, E. Howard Hunt on his deathbed and naming some of the conspirators. Uh, what are some of the other documents uh, that you'd like to get your hands on, or what is left for you to uncover? What what are the what's the smoking gun document you'd like to see? The main thing I want to get my hands on are those 61 pages that are related to David Morales that are still in the National Archives. And if we can get those released without being redacted, that's the key thing, then we're going to find out more what, about what he knew about both of these assassinations. And back in 1976, the House Committee on Assassinations, they tried to get their hands on these documents. But the agency said, well, you know what, there's no time to, to go through them and collate them. So we don't have the resources to, to get through them and, and release them to the, to the Congress. So they were denied access back in 76, the national, the U.S. Congress. So we're talking about arrogance here from the agency to, to get to the truth here. So we'll see what happens. We'll keep trying. Uh, if the, uh, the the connection to the drug trade in Southeast Asia in Laos was uh, pivotal uh, in terms of a motive for the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, uh, explain to me the importance of the drug trade to the CIA operation. Well, the main thing is it's all about money. If you follow the money here, you can see how if the war comes to an end, then they no longer can sell the heroin to the men in Vietnam. And we're talking about half a million potential customers there in Vietnam that they're selling these drugs to. And about 60,000 men kill themselves from drug addictions when they come back home to our country, the United States. So we're talking about an agency that is just ruthless in terms of its operations. They even used the coffins of the soldiers to bring this drug into the U.S. They would stuff the coffins with heroin and then ship this to our country. I, I remember reading that in your, in, in your book, uh, yeah, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. That, to me, is uh, just almost unfathomable to, 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 to believe. How do we know this? Uh, I mean, is, do you know for a certainty that that occurred, and how do we know? In fact, I, after I was talking about this on Coast to Coast, I had two different emails that I got from veterans that said they were in Air America, and they themselves saw this happen. And they were admitting this to me years later, that they are part of this, and they were just ashamed of it, that they took part in this, and that they, they witnessed all this that took place on the ground back in the late 60s and 70s. And a lot of this stuff, you know, it's hard to talk about that our own government did this. But, again, it's all about the profit motive. They are making so much money off of this drug trade year after year that these men were in the way of it. And, in fact, in RFK's announcement speech for the presidency, he made a point to say that one thing he learned about when he was in JFK's administration was the importance of limiting military power. And one particular point he mentioned is the negotiations for peace settlements in Laos. He pointed out in his speech in March of 68. So he made a point back when he even became a candidate for the presidency that this is going to be a part of his campaign pushing peace in Laos and in Vietnam. Uh, his, uh, Kennedy's opponent um, would, would have been Richard Nixon. Right. Uh, it's, uh, it's always interesting uh, to note that, uh, you know, when Nixon was asked about where he was on November 22nd, he was apparently the only person on the planet who didn't recall. 
I mean, he's not he, the man is dead, and and I, I you know, uh, not here to defend himself, obviously. But right. was Nixon at all involved in Bobby's demise? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that Richard Nixon made it very clear to a number of key people in the military and the CIA that he became president, that he would expand the war in Vietnam. In fact, Lyndon Johnson knew about this. He called it treason, in fact. Nixon was making it clear to the peace negotiators in, in Vietnam, people in Vietnam, you know, basically don't push for peace. Let the war continue. He wanted, if he became president, to continue the war. And this was great to those in the military, and they wanted to keep the war going. And Johnson knew about this, called it treason. And, uh, yeah, Nixon was casting his lot before he even became president with the military. Well, even conservative commentator George F. Will has come out and, and, and said it's it's 100% certain Richard Nixon uh, committed treason. And and this was this, the what people were complaining about the, uh, the Congress in the United States sending these letters to Iran saying, uh, you know, your nuclear agreements with the president mean nothing. Uh, same sort of deal, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, with Nixon, uh, Bobby Kennedy would have defeated Nixon in 68. He would have, Humphrey almost beat him anyway. Humphrey got very close to defeating Nixon, and Humphrey wasn't even that popular. RFK would have, would have defeated Nixon, uh, I think, pretty easily. So Nixon was, I think, fairly certain that he was going to lose a second time to another Kennedy, and that wasn't sitting too well with him. Uh, the Phoenix program um, right. was ostensibly, uh, you know, designed to to neutralize um, the Viet Cong. But what was really going on with Project Phoenix, and what is the connection between uh, or the Phoenix program, the Phoenix program, and Air America? Phoenix program is set up by the agency, the CIA, to do a number of things. Uh, one thing is that they want to give a good body count to Lyndon Johnson and Nixon that the war is being won. Who they're really killing is people that are against them, opponents of the drug trade, people who could, um, you know, anyone that would be in their way that might cause trouble for them. It's their own private assassination program, really, to liquidate anyone that is opposed to them and to keep the war going as long as possible. And it serves a number of different purposes, one of which is to provide assassins for different purposes. In fact, um, a number of different people have said that perhaps the assassins from Dr. King's assassination came from the Operation Phoenix program as well. That was in Dr. Pepper's book, or a different, different book. I might have read that in. But anyway, the, the program itself has different tentacles that go in many, many directions. All right. Um, listen, we are out of time, but I want to uh, thank you for spending some time with us and commemorating the uh, 47th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Robert F. Kennedy. And um, look forward to speaking to, to you again. We've got the, uh, the anniversary of JFK Jr.'s assassination coming up as well, so we'll speak again for sure. Thank you so much, Richard, for a great conversation. John Kerner, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. All right, that's it. We are done. My thanks to Tim Spreen, Albert Vinzel, uh, Eric Ames, and all of you for listening. I'm back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that one. It'll be good. 
Uh, Joel Skousen will be here in the first hour to talk about Jade Helm 15, which of course is coming to the American Southwest, this uh, military uh, exercise that has a lot of people very worried. We'll find out what's really going on there. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, your little cabin in the woods that's off the grid. Wherever and however you're listening, it's great to have you aboard. Welcome. Incidentally, uh, immediately following the conclusion of The Conspiracy Show, I'll be uh, moving on over to another studio in another location and hosting Coast to Coast AM. So check your local listings and uh, stand by for uh, five hours, uh, one hour of this program and uh, an additional four hours of Coast to Coast, four, uh, five hours of <laughs> yours truly talking. That's a little much, don't you think? Well, that's just the way it is. Uh, next week on the program, Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, will be here to discuss Jade Helm 15. Now, I've received nearly 100 emails over the last couple of weeks from listeners wanting to know what Jade Helm 15 is all about. Uh, This is the military exercise or drill uh, being run by the Pentagon that's to take place in July, uh, perhaps for two weeks, maybe longer, and it'll happen across much of the United States Southwest, including Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and California. And there is a lot of wild speculation online uh, that this drill, Jade Helm 15, is perhaps a prelude Uh, to martial law. Now, I don't happen to believe that, Uh, although there are aspects of Jade Helm 15 that I find disturbing, and one of the aspects is that this exercise will include simulated apprehension of dissidents. The other aspect I find disturbing is we're told the U.S. military is exercising in the U.S. Southwest because of the terrain, the desert. It's similar to the Middle East. In other words, they're training for a future combat mission in the Middle East. I don't believe that. Uh, If that's the case, why aren't they changing the names of the places where they'll be conducting these drills? Uh, Traditionally, or that's the usual protocol, they change the names to, uh, these are fictitious names, so that people in a particular location in the United States won't be offended. Uh, So it gives the impression that the U.S. military is drilling or exercising for a future combat scenario in the United States where they would be targeting presumably U.S. citizens. That's what's disturbing. Uh, In any event, tune in next week. Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief will be here uh, to tell us what he knows about Jade Helm 15. Uh, Right now, we're off in a madly entirely different direction. Uh, Now, this is a powerful story. A few years ago, the young woman at the other end of the, uh, the line suffered a horrible mountain bike accident. And she was lucky. She survived. But in the aftermath of that brush with death, Stephanie Banks developed an extraordinary ability, an extraordinary paranormal ability. And you're about to learn what that ability is right now. Stephanie Banks is an award-winning author 
who is quickly making her mark as an accomplished author. She was born into a family of intuitives who encouraged fostering faith in accepting guidance from within. Prior to her near-death experience, she led a life directed by modern-day terms that lacked depth and clarity. Immediately following her encounter, her death Immediately following her encounter with death, her life transformed to that of an awakened soul. She's now dedicated her life to mastering ancient wisdom and writing candidly about all that she learns through this process. <clears throat> her unfailing connection to the non-physical realm offers guidance and transformation to all those that seek profound, prof that seek profound insight into our existence. Hey, Stephanie, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you tonight? Very well. Congratulations on your book, A Soulful Awakening. Quite a journey. Thank you. It has been quite an incredible journey, for sure. Let's, uh, let's dial it back, August of 2012. And uh, you're in uh, uh, Whistler, British Columbia, which is a, uh, an exceptionally, extraordinarily beautiful part of the country. And uh, you're a biker. So what, what happened? Take us back there and, and uh, uh, really drill down and, and paint a mental picture for us. Sure. Okay. It's, uh, I always have a difficult time talking about it still, which is, I find, rather um, odd that it's been so many years yet. I think when we have traumatic experiences, that's probably somewhat normal. But basically what happened was in uh, August of 2012, uh, I took a trip with my family, my husband and my son, to Whistler. And for those of you who have been there, it's a pretty unforgiving um, territory, very mountainous terrain. And we had just recently got back into downhill biking. So this was our first uh, real adventure back on our bikes. And on the second day, we decided to take the gondola up to the top of the ski hill, which acts as a mountain biking trail in the summertime. And we had spent a couple of days prior just sort of testing the water, seeing where we were at in terms of our skill level. And so on this day, we decided, okay, we're, we're good. We'll take the gondola up to the top and start it with a green run. So we did that and found that to be relatively easy. So we decided the next time around we would do an intermediate run. And uh, we found that to be just about right. The water was, you know, sort of perfect, so to speak. So we decided, well, let's do that run again. And um, about a third of the way down that particular run, there was a series of jumps. So my son and my husband are jumpers, and they wanted to um, to take one of these jumps and asked that I would go down and take a picture. And I'm not a jumper. I prefer to keep my myself firmly planted on the ground. So um, my thought was, I'll just take this little path that bypasses these jumps and go and take a picture. And partway down um, this bypass, something came over me, and uh, to this day, I don't really know what it was. It was almost like an uncontrollable force or an urge, and I found myself diverting off of this bypass and heading straight into one of these jumps, and I remember having the thought that I'll just roll over it. It'll, it'll just be this little hill, and I'll roll over it and carry on my way and stop at the bottom and, and take a picture, and my mistake in that thought process was making the assumption that it was just this gradual rolling hill. What I failed to realize is that there was about an eight-foot gap between the takeoff and the landing. And um, it wasn't until I was, you know, just about to launch off this takeoff that I realized what was happening. And I found myself being catapulted through the air and... Um, 
not having enough speed to actually clear the jump, I instead found myself smashing off this rock face on the other side and uh, head first. Uh, luckily, I had a full face helmet on and my I remember my head bouncing off this rock face and um, my wrists and, and the wheels of my bike really taking the impact and and then bouncing backwards and falling into um, a crevasse below. And it was about a six to eight foot drop in, onto a rocky bottom. It's, you know, the mountains. So uh, it's not like there was a nice soft landing underneath me. And um, in that, that moment when I was actually impacting the wall and falling through the air, I just felt this sense of, of a, it was almost like, some somebody or something was absorbing any pain or fear that I could have been having in that moment. And it was actually in a weird sort of way, a, a, a peaceful moment. And it's a very difficult concept to explain because when you're in that kind of situation and I'm explaining it, I really still don't even understand how it could have been peaceful, but it was. And um, I ended up with multiple injuries. I left Whistler, um, the hospital, I, I left with two casts, one on each arm and uh, multiple other injuries on my body. And Did you lose consciousness uh, at any point, Stephanie? I have, a mo- I have this moment of time where I don't have any recollection of what was going on, so I would have to say I did. And when, you're, when but, your husband and your, your, uh, your son, was it, presumably found you? They did. They witnessed the whole thing. They were quite a ways up the hill. Um, as they were going to come down and take this jump. So it took, it took them, you know, probably about a minute or so. I, I asked Steve and he thinks it was about a minute to actually get down and, and um, help me. And at this point I had come to, and I remember seeing a, a, a guy jumping over top of me and then another guy jumping over top of me and, you know, the flow, continuous flow of mountain bikers just, they didn't know I was in the gully. So they just kept jumping and, when I opened my eyes and saw these couple jumpers uh, over top of me, I just, it was, it's like that survival instinct kicked in and I jumped to my feet and I remember just scrambling out of the rocks and uh, I didn't see Stephen Dawson at this point yet. And I remember thinking, I hope somebody doesn't land on top of me. I hope that a biker doesn't come and, and jump and make this situation worse, but it was the only way out. And just as I was about to scramble over the top, Steve and Dawson were there and, and this kind German fellow who witnessed the whole thing and they got me out of the out of the pathway and onto the side of the hill. And even though I had these multiple broken bones in my hands and wrists, I sat there for maybe 30 seconds and there was conversation going on about, you know, who to call and how to get me out of there. And without even another thought, I hopped on my bike and I just, booked it to the bottom of the hill and it was excruciating it was more painful than childbirth and I just all I can think about is I need to get out of here I need to get out of here and I I biked to the bottom and there was a first aid uh attendant um right at the bottom of of the hill and they shuttled me to the hospital and from there I was assessed and um found myself in the in the casting room eventually and I um I was, you know, watching him, watching the doctor cast one arm and then he asked for the other arm and it became clear that he was actually going to cast my right arm as well. And I went into this complete panic of, 
I can't have two casts on my arms. How am I going to function? I won't even be able to brush my teeth. You know, normal thoughts that we would all have in such right. a situation. And you and you had you you had jumped on your your bike and you rode <laughs> through that rough terrain with, with two broken arms, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's, uh, I think it's that that human spirit. I think that just kicks in, and when you're in that kind of situation. You hear about this kind of thing happening, you think, how in the world did that person do that? And it's that adrenaline and that survival instinct that I think that just kicks in. Sure. I mean, it's, uh, I mean there's, there's, nothing un, uh, there's nothing ordinary about what happened to you. But when these things happen, you do hear uh, time and time again uh, this, this narrative. We're heading into a break here. But uh, you, you hear this narrative of time slowing down and, uh, um, uh, and when, when people are under incredible uh, strain and pressure. I don't know whether it's the endorphins uh, that, that kick in. Perhaps that's part of it. But we'll, we'll find out what else happened to you as you lay in that gully uh, after this amazing, extraordinary accident, um, hitting a uh, colliding with a rock wall at full force on a bike and uh, falling into a rocky crevasse below. We will continue our conversation with Stephanie Banks, author of A Soulful Awakening, One Woman's Extraordinary Journey from Life to Death to a Soulful Awakening. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're back with Stephanie Banks, A Soulful Awakening, and uh, talking about her horrific uh, bike accident, mountain bike accident, back in August of 2012 in Whistler, uh, B.C. Now, um, let's back it up to the, um, uh, that crevasse that you fell into, and you're lying in this gully. Uh, and this is where your, um, your story really takes sort of a, a different trajectory. Uh, talk about off the beaten path, but what happened to you while you were laying in that gully, do you suppose? Well, it was, uh, I guess I, I need to fast forward just a little bit so that there's some continuity to the story. At, in, in those moments, it was, to me, just an accident, and I felt, like I said earlier, that I wasn't really present or somebody was absorbing the pain, um, but until I started my recovery pr- process, that's really all it was. I had no explanation of this feeling that I was having. And um, when I, as I said, when I was in the casting area and I realized that I was about to have my right arm casted as well, I, I begged and I pleaded with the doctor. And luckily for me, I'm a very persuasive person sometimes. And, and I said to him, please, if, you know, if there's any way of just half casting this arm and tying it with a tensor bandage, so that if I need, if I have a panic attack and I need to get myself out of this cast, just even briefly, I can do that. And he was very apprehensive, but in the end, I think he saw the panic on my face and, and he agreed. So uh, when I when I started my recovery process back at, at home here in Kamloops, I um, on my second day, I found myself really falling into this slump and this almost depression. I've never suffered from depression, but I could feel myself really just slipping down this uh, slippery slope of anger and frustration with myself at what I had done. I have a, I, I run a, bit, a landscaping business with with my brother. We have, you know, 27 plus employees at any given time. It was August. We're in the height of our season. I have a hobby farm. So all these thoughts are running through my mind, and uh, I just decided, you know what, I have to change this thought process and this pattern. I need to do something more constructive with this energy that I'm feeling. So I decided 
uh, maybe I'll try reading. Well, I tried reading and I did not have the attention span for that. So I thought, well, maybe I'll write. I've always enjoyed writing. Maybe I'll sit down and write. So I grabbed a journal. I headed out to my deck. I live in a very pristine part of Canada, so I'm fortunate it's, it's tranquil and peaceful. And I sat on my deck uh, and I was contemplating, what am I going to write about? What, what do I have to write about right now? I just feel angry. I don't want to write about that. And literally while I was thinking this, I realized that I had already been writing. And I saw my mother's name, who passed away in 1996, written at the bottom of this page. And I was confused. I flipped back and I realized that I had just written nine pages. Um, and Sorry, excuse me. At, uh, pardon the interruption, uh, Stephanie. Uh, are, are you writing on a keyboard or hand, handwritten? or hand, Handwriting in a journal. Handwriting in a journal, okay. Just in, as if I was journaling. And you had written nine pages before you even realized that you'd put pen to paper. Exactly. I felt like I was just contemplating what I was going to write about, and then it, it was almost like I was just, again, not really there or somewhere else. or it, It's almost like you're, you know, when you space out sometimes, and then you, at least I do, every now and then I'll space out, and then I'll be like, oh, where was I for the last couple seconds? That, it's, that that's a, it's a, well, I can't compare my episode to yours, uh, but I, I can relate entirely. A couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I drove uh, to the, uh, the station here in Toronto from my home, which is about a 40-minute drive from North Toronto to the Liberty Village neighborhood where I'm at. And, and before realizing it, I pulled into the parking lot here, and I had no recollection of how I had gotten here. So I, it's right. very unsettling. It is, and and it happens, and I'm glad to you know hear that it's happened to you as well. Although I'm sorry that it's unsettling, to you, but it gives me a little bit of solace because that's how it felt. And so as I'm looking back at this writing that I had just done, not only was I shocked at the fact that I was writing, but I was shocked at the fact that I saw my mother's name as if it was a letter. And then I recognized the printing, and it was it, it was pretty much identical to my mother's printing from when she was alive. Oh my! So I decide I'm I'm going to read this. So obviously I start reading this letter, and it was uh, she talked about how my door had been closed and now it was open, and I had now had an understanding of what happens on the other side, and that I have a connection to what lies beyond the veil, so to speak. And, uh, and then she went on to talk about how we are in the heat of powerful times um, on the planet and we are shifting and transforming in a spiritual way, basically evolving on a spiritual level. And um, gosh, there were so, so many concepts that she was broaching with me that I had never contemplated before, really, ever in my life. And I finished reading this letter, and I was stunned and really had no idea what to make of it and what had just happened. I had heard of channeling before. Right, or uh, or automatic writing is, is also sometimes referred to. Yeah, I've heard, and I did some studying after and some research trying to figure out, you know, are, is there a difference between the two, and I don't really know that there is. No, but, not that I'm aware of. It just seems like they're the same and same thing. In addition to it being in her hand, as you say, the printing, you recognize the printing, and it was even in your the fact that your hands, your arms were were in uh, casts. Uh, you were, um, 
I mean, I can't imagine writing uh, that way. It would be a, a, a scrawl. But it, you, well, you recognize the handwriting immediately was your mother's. But was it also written in her voice, if you know what I mean? The words that she would use, the phrases, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And first, I should clarify um, that I had taken off the cast on my right arm because he had cut it right down the center line and tied it with a bandage right, and, right. or, that. sorry, a tensor bandage. So before we even got home on the first day, I, we stopped in Lillooet and I, I had Steve take it off. I felt claustrophobic. I'm claustrophobic at the best of times. So my, my right arm was free and it actually wasn't super painful compared to the rest of my body. It was the least of, of my pain. So I was actually quite free to write. It was the one thing that I could do throughout the cover, the recovery process. And yes, there, it was her, her, there was her words and the way that she spoke and um, the nickname that she called me by. And sure, you know, for a skeptic out there, you could say, well, you know, the nickname that your mother called you. And yes, I, I do. But it's still, when I read this letter, it sounded like her. And not too long after that, I got, I received a message from my grandfather and it was very difficult to write. The writing was really hard to read. And it was his writing, and so distinctly his writing. I took it downstairs to my brother, and I he didn't know anything. He didn't know what was going on with me at all. And I showed him this writing, and I said, who is this? And he said, well, it's Grandpa's. Where'd you get that from? And that was the confirmation right then and there. And again, it was his words and his way of speaking, yet slightly different um, at the same time. So, So as I went through this, uh, this sort of transformation within myself of this new ability to channel um, from these either people that had passed away or guides and teachers as they were coming through to me. One of the um, one of the things that I decided to do, uh, I'm not too sure in the time frame, but I think it was within a, a couple of months. My partner Steve and I. Um, decided to talk to a friend of ours who's a very spiritual person. He spent his whole entire life um, studying and mastering different levels of spirituality and energy work and, and that kind of thing. And I wanted to, I wanted his opinion. I, I was looking for confirmation and some support. I felt confused and uh, a little bit strange. Sure. Why? <laughs> Who wouldn't? I mean, and are you, you mentioned, you know, when you had the accident, there, there was that, uh, that, that missing time, it may have been 30 seconds, it may have been a minute, who knows. But And then when you were writing, uh, journaling the first time, and your mother came through, uh, suddenly you realized you'd written nine pages. Now, how long would it take to write nine pages? Maybe maybe three-quarters of an hour? Hard to say. I mean, each time this happens to you, is there like missing time, or you do you feel like you're in some sort of a trance? Not now, no. And that was the only time where it really felt like that, because I wasn't expecting to do that. I, I didn't have any expectations of what I was going to do other than sit down and write. From that moment on, I purposely sat down and still do with the intent of um, reaching out to somebody on the other side. So I don't feel like I lose time, but what I do feel is that time stands still. So it's a little bit different. I know what I'm doing. I know what's going on around me. I hear my dogs barking if they're barking or the donkey's honking or whatever donkey's noises are called. <laughs> right, right. So I, I'm aware of all of that. It was the, That was the only time where that happened. Did your mother come through again um, in that first? She's, 
Yeah, she's come through numerous times, and and that's why I think I think I love so much about all of this. And now it's become something that I can share with other people. Is that I, I it brought so much freedom to me, knowing that she's there, and that I have this new found connection with her, and it's not going anywhere under any circumstances, whether whether I die tomorrow or whether it doesn't matter that it's an unbreakable connection. And it's interesting when my mother passed away at her memorial service, this gentleman that I, I, I've never seen him since I hadn't seen him beforehand. He was just part of the lineup of people coming to greet me and give their condolences. He came up to me and gave me this quite a uh, magnificent bear hug and looked me in the eyes. And he said, your relationship with your mother has just changed. That's all. And in time, you'll know what I'm talking about. That's beautiful. And I had, no, it was. It really was. And it struck me. And I never forgot it. Yet it took me 20-some-odd years to really understand what he was trying to say. And uh, how uh, did these communications um, help you with your recovery? Well, they became a painkiller, really. I didn't, I didn't take one painkiller after that that initial trip to the hospital i probably should have i was in a lot of pain yet when i sat down to write and then uh and then after i wrote i would read and then i would start contemplating it became this daily process that was fairly long drawn out it was like i almost became uh it's all i really thought about is i'd wake up in the morning and i'd be excited and i'd feel a passion that i'd never felt um, really before about anything. And through that passion, I was able to forget about the pain that I was in and the fact that I was um, not being supported to my, supportive to my business or, or my, my home and that kind of thing. So it was a, it was a, it, and it was so transformative for me. And that was the other thing. Like once I got past the doubt and the apprehension and um, the fear of being judged and, and all of that, it, it became such a transformation within me that I started to share it. And once I started to share it, I really started to understand the um, capabilities that these messages had to transform other people around me. And now here I am sharing as much as I can because I don't feel that these messages were meant for me. I'm, I'm just as special as everybody else out there. And okay, I've got to, excuse me, Stephanie, got to uh, take a time out here. We'll come back and I'll find out uh, uh, who else came through during these uh, channeling or automatic writing sessions and, and how you prepare for these and how it's decided who comes through at any given time and so forth. Stephanie Banks, A Soulful Awakening, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped. And we are back with Stephanie Banks, A Soulful Awakening, one woman's extraordinary journey from life to death to a soulful awakening after a horrific mountain bike accident in Whistler, B.C. Uh, during her recovery uh, while, while journaling uh, these uh, Sp- these spirits, uh, these uh, uh, d- departed souls, were coming through during her um, during her journal writing. And uh, at first, it was her mother, and then her her late grandfather. Now, w- when you sit down, this is a, a short segment. We'll get into it now, and then we'll uh, discuss after. But uh, how do you how do you prepare for this? Do you, do you hear a voice first that says, "Sit down, pick up a pen, and here we go"? Or do you? How does that work? Sometimes that's happened a, a couple of times, but but rarely. Um, but I have been in that situation where somebody has requested a message for themselves, and um, I always say to people when they when they ask me for a message that 
I can't guarantee a time because I have to feel like the timing's right. So every now and then I'll, I'll just get an urge and, and I know I have to write. But more often than not, I decide, you know, I just need to write. It's been a while. I need to sit down. I need to reconnect. For me, it's a form of meditation. And then in which case, I simply grab, you know, tea or water or, you know, a coffee. I'm a coffee drinker and um, a, a stone or a crystal of some sort usually and make sure that the house is going to be relatively quiet for the next little while. And, and I sit down and open up my journal and um, I always start with my own little blurb. I say, you know, good morning, universe, um, guide, teachers, protectors, and then I, I give a gra- my gratitudes, you know, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting and, and, and so on and so forth. And then I simply ask if there's anyone who has a message for us today or for me in general or for so-and-so who has asked for one, or if I'm curious about something, you know, could you please explain to me what is ego? I want to know, like, explain it to me in your words, that kind of thing, and then to date, I always receive an answer of some description, and they're beautiful and magnificent and wise. And how many how many uh, uh, letters have you dictated from the other side, essentially, to date? Oh, uh, hundreds, I'm sure. Hundreds, I think right. I, I have at least uh, 12 or 13 journals full at this point. And, and aside from relatives... Uh, uh, who else has come through uh, uh, that uh, of note? Let's say. I mean, anyone coming through obviously would be noteworthy. But anyone, <laughs> anyone of note, uh, an exceptional communication that actually you know left you absolutely gobsmacked. Well, the, there's there's a few that that definitely um, seem to really impact me on, on a on a deeper level. I mean, they all do. Like you say, it's hard to sort of distinguish one from the other in terms of being more important than than the next, but. Uh, my own personal guide who apparently I traveled with during my um, experience in the gully, the, that moment that I don't re- really recall, uh, Ruby, Ruben, otherwise known as Ruben, he, he and I have a very special connection. And then um, Solomon, and I don't know to this date if it's, you know, Solomon that other people are talking about to me. He's Solomon and very wise very informative and knowledgeable, kind and caring. Um, I have one of my own, uh, Solomon and, and, and Ruby seem to sort of encompass many, 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 many souls. And uh, it seems to me that we're all, we're all one and we're all together, yet at the same time we're, we're sort of broken down into these groups and um, watched over and guided by various guides and, and some some of these guides will have numerous people, like maybe even, you know, thousands and millions for all I know. And then others are more specific to individuals. So I have a guide that's really specific to me. And um, and so I connect quite closely with him. But you know what? They all, it doesn't matter if it's, if I was to channel a message for you, that that guide, whatever they have to say, is still striking me on a deep level and impacting my life in some way. And and uh, are these guides, um, are they all departed souls? I mean, did they once, you know, walk this earth? Or are some of them perhaps from the angelic realm? I mean, who are these or, or what are these entities? Well, I think there's 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 been probably 12 or 14 that I've channeled, and it appears like the majority of them have at one time or another incarnated 
um, probably numerous times. Um, Ruby, I don't feel has, and I don't know why I haven't asked that, and maybe now I will. And I don't, but I just have the sense that he's just always been in the non-physical realm. Solomon, I asked him that question, have you ever been here? Have you ever lived in human form? And he has. He's, he described himself, and I think I included this in the book, he described himself as a ruler at one time, but he talked about how he ruled and um, the proper way of ruling and how to really uh, encompass the compassionate way of guiding people as opposed to how, you know, a lot of people tend to let their egos rule instead of their hearts and souls. So Perhaps it was King Solomon that we know, of course, from the Old Testament. Well, and it may be. It may be. There's just always so many questions, and there's not enough time to get all the answers. So this is, I'm only into year two, you know, two and a half, well, almost three, I guess, at this point. And um, there's just so many questions for me to ask, and I'm excited to hear what, what comes out. Do you have any time to landscape anymore? I mean, I would imagine if this were to happen to me and I would discover that, that I was being used to channel these messages, it would it would take over your life. I remember, uh, this may seem like an odd uh, sort of reference, but I remember watching with my children a scene from Harry Potter and, and young Harry Potter, uh, a, a new student at Hogwarts, and he's looking in, he's gazing into this mirror that he's discovered where he's able to see his parents. Uh, and he's so transfixed by the ma- mirror that, uh, that um, the school's headmaster... Um, uh, cautions him. You know, he says, you've got to get away from this mirror because it's going to take over your life and you're not going to be able to move forward if you keep, you know. Is there any concern? Well, we're going to head into a break, but we'll we'll discuss on the other side. Uh, A Soulful Awakening with Stephanie Banks right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And our uh, final segment with Stephanie Banks, an incredible, extraordinary journey from life to death to a soulful awakening. And um, I, I asked you before the break about whether this, uh, you know, this ability that you now have uh, to sit down and channel or automatic write and communicate with the other side, uh, whether there's any danger that that could, or whether it has already taken over your life. Do you have time to, to, to uh, for other pursuits like your landscaping business? Well, oddly enough, I, I find that I don't have enough time to pursue this right now. And I think if I didn't have a business partner and... Um, 27 employees that relied on me for for a job. I don't know that I would still be doing it, but I do. I have commitments that I need to up, up you know, I need to keep until the time is right. But what I have done is I went to a, a I went to a time of um, confusion, and uh, I needed to find a balance. I needed to figure out how to incorporate this with that. And what I managed to do is take these lessons that I share in the book and start applying them. And it's one thing to read them, it's another thing to know them and feel them and to, to live by them. And when you do, you can, you can take that anywhere with you. So I take it to work and I, I, I coach my staff and, and my clients and who knows where these co- topics are going to come up, these conversations, and I'm able to implement everything that I've learned through my landscaping business. And there's something really magical and beautiful and challenging and being able to do that and watch your company prosper and grow in the same way that you are as an individual. So I'm not really worried about that. Give me some examples of of, um, the the messages that have come through while you were automatic writing your journal uh, from the other side and and, and information that was given to you that you've put into practice. Uh, Well, a big one is to... Uh, follow my intuition and that seems like such a you know simple thing and you hear that all the time yet at the same time how often do we ignore it 
And about 99% fall, of the time. Exactly. And I was one of those. And now I'm more, more often than not, than not, do I actually follow that. And I listen to my intuition and I go with that and I remove all doubt that my logical mind is telling me. And as long as I keep following that intuition, my life just rolls out magically. It's like a, an explosion of synchronicities that just fall into place. And it's, uh, it's quite astounding and beautiful. But you know what? All the lessons have uh, assisted and supported me in my life in, in such an amazing way to date that it's hard, it's hard to sort of de- decipher one without discussing the other. And uh, what do these um, uh, spirits or souls tell you? Uh, the other side is like, where is it? What does it look like? Well, um, I guess it'd be a good time to to sort of discuss the message that I got in regards to what happened to me when I crashed into this wall. And apparently what happened was I was um, guided by by one of my guides, Ruby, and, um, and a few other guides from what I've been told. And we traveled. And where we traveled, I don't really know. I just know that we traveled out there somewhere. And from that vantage point, I was able to see my life clearly here on Earth this time around, as well as my eternal life and the eternal life of all souls in the universe. And from there, I made a decision whether to keep seeing what I was being shown or whether to come back. And I chose to come back and uh, with a newfound perspective on life and a, and a new mission, and um, that's where I am now. Where they are, it's still a little bit unclear. I don't know if I'll ever really understand that because I don't think we're capable of understanding that in this three-dimensional space where we are, this linear way of thinking. It's almost like some. if you were speaking to me in Japanese, I just I wouldn't have any clue. I'd have no idea. Right. I, I liken it to uh, you know, our... our our inability to understand or comprehend other dimensions, for example, looking down into a koi pond. Uh, and we can we look down into the koi pond, uh, maybe stick our finger, the tip of our finger, into the koi pond, and the koi, uh, no, by and large, no real sense of the world that we inhabit. They just see this, this finger coming down <laughs> into their world and saying, Wait, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> that, that's like a paranormal experience for them, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and... and um, Prior to all of this happening to you, what were you kind of a linear thinking person? Were you a skeptic about this? Uh, what what was your 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 spiritual inclination at that time? No, I, I, I definitely wasn't a skeptic. My I grew up with a with a mother who was constantly poking me in the in the gut, saying, "Follow that feeling. That's that's your guide. As long as you follow that feeling, you'll always be led in the right in the right path." And um, she had been to a few clairvoyants in her life, and I had I had gone to a channeler twice in my life. So I was definitely open to um, to other possibilities, and I always had a sense and a feeling that there was more than what I could see and and feel at that time in my life. But I had no real practices in place. I I didn't read any spiritual books. I didn't meditate. I didn't do yoga. I drank green tea every now and then. But that probably doesn't really count. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having one right now. <laughs> So it 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 completely changed. It, it completely cha- you know what it did it didn't really it did change me, but it sparked something that was already lit, and it turned it into this burning flame and this desire to follow that feeling and to go with it. And you know when we talk about where are these guides and where are these spirits and where do they come from? To me, at this point now that I've got to where I am, 
uh, that doesn't really matter so much. What matters to me is that the messages that I'm receiving, the lessons that I'm able to share are changing people's lives. And just before I got on the show, Steve pulled up an email from a lady who listened to a show I did last week, and it was just heartwarming. It almost brought me to tears that that one radio interview was able to bring her the peace that it did. So it's more about the content, less about where it's coming from. Sure. Now, uh, is there anything, do you think, particular about the way your, your brain is wired, or can some can anyone uh, learn to do this? And do you have any advice for someone who, who might be uh, interested in, in learning to uh, get into automatic writing or to channel? I think that anyone who is um, listening to this show or reading books along these lines has already um, something inside them knows that that there's that it exists. And if you have any kind of knowing or inclination that channeling or being in touch with the other side is real, then there's no doubt in my mind that you can do it. If you're one of those people that just refuses to believe it, and that's fine because, you know, there's those people in the world and this is a big place and we've all come through different lifetimes at different, you know, different periods and whatnot. I, it may not be possible for, for them right now, but that being said, things can shift in a lyric, in an accident, in something that somebody says, a tap, a, a tap on the shoulder, a hug. You never know what is going to create that shift and, and that revelation that could hit you at any moment. Uh, I was uh, listening back to an interview I did with uh, an author on this program. Uh, I believe it was in December of last year. He just passed away. Michael Luckman, he wrote a book called Alien Rock, and he was writing about UFO encounters uh, told to him by or that he's researched by various musical artists, Elvis Presley, and uh, who had you know incredible sightings in the Los, in the uh, the Nevada desert. Uh, John Lennon, of course, who had several close encounters. But the other aspect he talked about, uh, he, and he was writing a new book on this at the time of his death, and that is um, this almost this channeling aspect that many musical artists talk about. In fact, they feel almost guilty for taking credit for the music or the lyrics that they write because they, Lennon in, in, in included, and Yoko Ono has uh, confirmed this in other interviews, Lennon would say, I, I didn't write this. It just came to me. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's the same sort of thing that, that you're experiencing. I think it's the exact same thing. You know, I, I went and um, I saw Wayne Dyer speak, and prior to 2012, believe it or not, I had never even heard of Wayne Dyer. That's how green I was. And uh, when I saw him speak in Pasadena, he spoke about that. He said, it took me 30 years to realize that this information, you know, is coming from a higher source. And... What was interesting for me was when um, I was about two or three journals in to this writing, I decided I need to start reading what other people are writing. So I went down to the library, went into the spirituality section, this book jumped off the shelf, I read it, and as I was reading it, I I got chills up and down my body. I was like, I could take any of these channeled messages that I just received, insert them into this book, or vice versa, and it would still make sense. It was like it was coming from the same source. So... I think a lot of the time when we give ourselves the opportunity and and the freedom to sit and be quiet and be still and engage in something that is meditative, um, that's when we open up this 
channel and we all have it it's all there we all came from the same source we live through the same source and we go back to the same source so we're all the same it's just a matter of how clean that connection is and once you figure out a way of cleaning that connection and being and and opening it it's like a rusty pipe or a pipe that's got something stuck in it you can't force water through it it's just not going to flow right right clean and open and then it's amazing what you can get, so I think it happens all the time. Any connection with the pineal gland, do you suppose, the third eye? I think so, absolutely. I think that's, you know, it, I, I'm not super well educated in the pineal gland at this point. I've, it's funny that you say that because I was listening to uh, one of your shows earlier today, and it happened to be that one, <laughs> a lady that you had interviewed that talked about Oh, Dr. Susan Shumsky, yes, Dr. Susan Shumsky. Right, yeah. so... I, you know, I found, found that very educating, and but I, I think that that's, you know, that's that's the core, that's the catalyst. There's, you know, that that's our connecting one of our connecting links, anyways, right there. Uh, whenever we, we we talk about spirit communication on this program, when I talk to 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 researchers in this field, they always offer sort of a caution uh, or a caveat, and that is, you know, you have to be careful uh, if you know we're we're uh, if you're sort of traversing the astral plane here, let's say, for example, or whatever you want to call it. There are other um, uh, lower, uh, or let's say, um, how should I put this? We have to be wary of of um, more nefarious entities, don't we? I mean, aren't you opening yourself up to that possibility that, that uh, something perhaps a little more nefarious could come through, a, a, a not-so-enlightened um, spirit? I suppose it's possible. I haven't experienced that, and I, I'm a firm believer that where I choose to focus my attention and my fears is where I'm going to go. So I really don't have any fear of that happening. I haven't experienced it, and I don't believe at any level that that's what I'm going to attract. Um, life to me, whether it's the non-physical or the physical, is all a reflection, and w- what you what you choose to to focus on and um, where you choose to place, where you choose to play. If you give your fears credit, then maybe that's where you'll go. So if I went to bed at night thinking, oh my gosh, you know what, maybe I shouldn't channel tomorrow because maybe I'll get a dark, dark entity coming into my life, then chances are maybe that would happen. But the same thing could happen in the physical world. It's not going to stop me from going to work tomorrow and going to a client's house that I've never met before for fear that they're not a very nice sure. person. Yeah, you just if you stay out of the dodgy end of town, you're not going to encounter those on the physical plane or the uh, the astral plane. We are um, we're out of town, uh, out of time, uh, Stephanie. But I've enjoyed uh, meeting you and, uh, and I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. Stephanie Banks, A Soulful Awakening. That's it. We are done. Before we dim the lights, let me say thanks to uh, Tim Spreen, Albert Venzel, all of you for, list- for, you, uh, for, you, for listening, and back uh, next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.